if you've got your program, like I said, um, there are several things I want you to jot down as we continue our series. We started this series last week. Obviously, these are difficult times. We have never been any, through anything quite like this. Most, most of us would agree with the, with the saying, I've never been through anything like this. And I told you a few weeks ago, I told you last week that a few years ago, I picked up a book. Uh, I was actually on a cruise, and uh, I read a book by one of my favorite authors, Pastor Max Locato. You should read everything that Pastor Mac writes. I try to. Um, and in his book, you'll get through this. There's a sentence that summarizes what I want to communicate through this entire series. Much of what we're talking about is, is from that book. And I've actually paraphrased um, this sentence that he has in there a little bit to include all of us. And it's this. It's, I read it last week. I, I'm going to read it every week in this series. It is this. We'll get through this. It won't be painless. Rich, did I forget the, I forgot the video of the scripture, didn't I? Yeah, that's why there's a big zero zero on there. Thank you. Um, I'll tell you what. I, I'm going to read this, and then we're going to jump to our to our uh, scripture reading. Um, I hope I didn't forget anything else. Um, we'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. It hasn't been painless, and it hasn't been quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive. But don't despair either. With God's help, we will get through this. So we are studying the life of Joshua, lessons from the life of Joshua. And I was supposed to introduce them a minute ago. Um, I want you to meet two of our church members, young couple, Sam and Courtney. They're going to read our scripture reading for today. Hi, SCC. We are Sam and Courtney Hartwell, and today we're going to be reading Joseph in Potiphar's house. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't have to worry about anything except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph, day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hands as he ran from the house. 
When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came rushing. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our household tried to come and, and fool around with me, she said. But I had screamed, and he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. This has been Genesis 39, verses 1 through 18. Thank you, Courtney and Sam. Nobody wants to read that story about rape and uh, accusations. and We are, though, in this second week of this series, as we talk about, we'll get through this, learning some lessons from this Old Testament Joseph. And I'm going to review that for you. Um, but today I want to talk about how to make God's presence my passion. My son Josh, uh, before he came to the work part, before he came to work part time for the church, um, he worked for two years at Chick Fil A in Mount Dora while he was in college. And at least at this particular Chick Fil A, they had on their name tags a little saying that said, "My passion is." And then the employee or the teammate got to pick what their passion was. So I might, if I had worked for Chick-fil-A back in the day, it would have said, Jerry, and maybe my passion is Miami Dolphins kind of a thing. Um, Josh, for his name tag, chose to write down Joshua, my passion, semicolon, God. And it opened up so many conversations with so many of his coworkers and even customers. My passion is God. So I want to talk to us today about how do I make God's presence my passion? Not just something that's in my life, but something that I am passionately pursuing. So I want to kind of give you a little review for those of you who are just joining us or just tuning in for the first time. When we first met Joseph last week, he was literally in the bottom of a pit. He was in a dry cistern that his brothers had thrown him into. Hands were bound, feet were tied. His 12 older brothers threw him into a pit. Talk about a dysfunctional family. The Bible says that his brothers hated him because their father, Jacob, showed preference to Joseph. That He pampered him. They worked all day. Joseph played all day. They wore clothes from the second-hand store. Joseph was given by his father Jacob an, an incredible hand-stitched, multicolored cloak with embroidered sleeves, looked like a Ric Flair wrestling robe. And his brothers caught up with Joseph one day. They found him far from home, far from daddy's protection, so they planned to kill him. That's how much hate they had for their little brother. Joseph's trouble started when he shares the details about some of the things that he had seen while he was sleeping, he had a dream or two, and he shared these dreams. The first dream that he shared was there was harvest time, and all these wheats, these, these sheaves of wheat were, were bound by together into piles, and each pile of wheat had a name on it, a name of one of the brothers, and he said they were all in a circle, and my bundle of of wheat, my sheet of wheat, stood up and everybody else stayed out. 
saying, you guys are all going to bow before me one day. The implication is you'll bow down to me. And he didn't stop there. He described to them the, the other dream that he had, which had a sun and a moon and stars. And he even interpreted this for his brother. He said, you guys represent all the stars. Or they represent you. And the sun and the moon represent my, our father and my deceased mother. And one day you are all going to bow down and, and worship me, bow down to me. Now, he, Joseph should have kept his, obviously he probably should have kept his dreams to, to himself. I'm sure he's thinking this as he's at the bottom of this pit and his brothers are having lunch, um, planning his demise. Before they could kill him, though, an opportunity came that changed everything. There were some, some traders heading to Egypt. They were Midian traders. And as they come by, the brothers decide, you know what, instead of killing him, we're going to sell him into slavery. So they do this negotiation. The long story short, by the way, if you want to listen or watch last week's message, if you missed it, all of our messages are archived online. Uh, you can go back and catch that episode so you can uh, know everything that went into that. They sell him for 20 silver coins. They take his fancy coat. He's tied to the back of a wagon, following the camels, heading down to Egypt. And the last thing we see is him look over his shoulder at his brother's backs as they cross the horizon carrying his coat. And Joseph's life goes from the favorite son to a slave in a matter of hours. He had a new coat. He had pampered place in the, his own bedroom at home. And, and his life comes down with a crash. An abandonment, like I said, it gets worse and worse and worse. This story has a happy ending. You should read the story of Joseph over the next six or seven weeks as we study it. It has a happy ending. We're going to get there. But before it gets good, it gets much, much worse because its abandonment leads to enslavement, which leads to entrapment, which then leads to imprisonment. But Joseph never gave up. We don't find that he ever lets his anger harden his heart. He never turns to hatred. He not only survived, he thrived. And he knew that in God's hands, evil, even if it was intentional evil, intended evil becomes eventual good. And this was the big takeaway from last week, from week one. I want you to write this down again. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. And one of the most famous verses, probably in the Old Testament, very famous, we've read it many times before, but this is the context. It's at the end of this very difficult story, the happy ending. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about Joseph's training, about his upbringing. It doesn't tell us that he has any skills or any talents. In fact, you're kind of led to believe by the brothers, they don't think he can do anything. But the narrator of this story, he kind of keeps pushing this theme that Joseph has a destiny. That this little, this he's 17 years old, this Hebrew boy, really, not even a man yet, he lost his family, he lost his dignity, he lost his, his home country, but he never loses his belief in God's plan for his life. He never loses his belief in God's purpose for his life. And trudging through the desert, following the caravan, bound and being drugged down 
to Egypt, he seems to say, this is not going to be the end of my story. That God has a plan for my life. I've been called to more than this. I may be a slave now. I may have an uncertain future. I may have a terrible... He doesn't know it yet, but it's going to be a couple of decades. But God is not finished with me. He has plans. God had a destiny for Joseph. And boy, did he believe in it. The truth is, for us, most of our life is lived at mid-altitude. Most of our life, much of our life, is lived kind of in middle ground. Every now and then we have a mountaintop experience. Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was the day you got a big promotion. Certainly it was probably the day your child or your children were born. Those are mountaintop days. But most of life is lived kind of in the mid-level Monday morning-ish days of life. Carpools and expense reports and recipes and report cards and I'm late for a meeting kind of days. On occasion, the world also bottoms out. And we go down, down, doo-doo, down, down, down. Those are the days when the housing market crashes like it did in 2008. Those are days when a loved one dies in our life. Those are days when maybe you get a phone call and it's the doctor's office and they say, I'm sad to inform you that your test results are positive and that's a negative. And now a pandemic shuts everything down. And before we know it, we are discovering what the real bottom of life looks like. In Joseph's case, he discovered the auction block, what the auction block in Egypt looked like. The bidding began, and for the second time in just a few, a few days or a few weeks, his young life is on the market. And this favorite, this favorite son of Jacob is now being poked and prodded and measured and they're checking his teeth and looking for lice and fleas and, and they're putting them for sale. And once again, we have people telling everybody how, how great a worker is, how hard a worker he is. And they embellish the story that the brothers told them and the salesmen from the merchants. They sell him. After they treat him like livestock, they sell him to a wealthy Egyptian, a man named Potiphar who happens to be an officer in Pharaoh's court. He's in charge of all of his security. Now, Joseph doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know the culture. The food is strange. The work is hard. The odds are definitely stacked against him. And we might expect that the next chapter of Joseph's life would talk about his plunge into addiction or his plunge into anger and despair, right? Wrong. Genesis 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. So, let's just stop right there. It's so easy to read over that. The Lord was with Joseph and keep on going. I want you to circle the words with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The most important phrase in the whole chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. 
So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Joseph arrived in Egypt with nothing but the clothes on his back and the call of God in his heart. Yet by the end of four verses, he is running the house of the man who ran all of the security for Pharaoh. How do we explain this turnaround? How does he go from the pit to the long march to Egypt, to the slave block, to being owned, to running things? Here's what I want you to write down. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. Genesis 39, 3-5 says, Potiphar noticed this. Potiphar noticed that God was with him. And he realized the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. And all of his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. Joseph's story isn't just another self-help book. There are no secret formulas that direct us to look within, with inside. No, there's no, just dig deeper. You know, just believe in yourself, Jerry. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. None of that. In fact, Joseph's story encourages us not to look within. He encourages us to look up, to look higher. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord. He succeeded because God was present in his life. God was with Joseph. In fact, he was all over Joseph. Any chance God could be with you? Any chance that God would do the same thing for us? Any chance that God would be with us? We are all kind of in our own little versions of Egypt today, aren't we? Sometimes this whole thing has, has felt foreign to us. We don't know the language. We never studied the vocabulary of a COVID crisis. We aren't epidemiologists. Most of us, if we're honest, had never heard of an epidemiologist. We certainly couldn't spell it. Some of us can't even say it, even to this day. None of us knew an epidemiologist. And like I said, most of us didn't even know what one was. And the truth is, if you're sitting in front of the TV every night or you're scrolling on your device every, every night and you're just listening to all this bad, 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 bad news all the time. And you're... Your friends are like my friends. They're sending you, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this video, Jerry? Pastor Jerry, could you tell me what you think of this hour and 37 minute video? I get about nine of those a day. Let me just let you know, I'm not looking at any, any videos, okay? I just don't have time. Yep, they may be crazy. Yep, they may be right. Yep, it might be true. Yep, it might be, it doesn't matter. I don't, there's not enough time for me to pastor a church and watch everybody's videos. 
You probably don't have time either. And if you do have time, you probably slack off on some of that. Turn off the whatever your favorite three letters are for your cable news network. Or Because I've got to tell you, if you listen to all the bad news all the time, you can feel so isolated, so alone. You can feel like you're so far away from home. And there's nothing but bad news on the horizon. To top that off, maybe you do have some real problems. Maybe your money's all gone. Maybe you lost your job eight weeks ago and you haven't had any money. You've been hoping for help from here and help from there. Website crashes and nothing happens and and you've been getting the runaround. Maybe your plans and your expectations for 2020 have been like just do-over, right? I mean... We come out of 40 days of purpose with so much gusto and so many resolutions and then... Right? Like we're just going to do 40 days of purpose again next year. For sure, your summer vacations or plans have been wrecked. Right now, right this minute, Nancy and I are supposed to be on a cruise coming from Anchorage, Alaska down to Vancouver, British Columbia. I've been telling her for the last three days, hey, you know where we'd be right now? Where? We'd be on a bus from Anchorage to the cruise. Stop! Stop! She says, don't tell me. You fell for it again, you know. And I'm like, Nancy, we'd be having our first dinner in the, in the, in the dining room, you know. No, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. We'd be getting dressed for our No, no, no. Yeah, it just rubs it in, right? That's just a re- I mean, fuges wrecked. And we're not going to get to go to Saddleback as a staff like we do every year. There is no conference. You know, they're all in their houses too. So maybe your plans and expectations for 2020 have been dashed. Maybe even your friends have vanished. We used to have close friends. You used to have people at work. And now, you know, they got their own problems, their own issues. You know, that you, you, you see on, on Facebook that they scored two things to toilet paper at BJ's. You didn't get a call. You know, you've scratched them off your list. You've unfriended them. Because you buy toilet paper and don't tell me we're done. So what's left? Maybe you've lost your job and lost your, your families away. What, let me tell you what's left. The only thing you need is left. God's presence. It's at times like this where we discover that God's presence is the most important thing in our world. David stated it like this. He said, how can I ever escape from your spirit? I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest, by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. God is everywhere. If Joseph were to write David's words back, he would have said it this way. Where can I go to get away from your spirit? If I go to the bottom of a dry pit, you're there. If I go to the top of the auction block, you're there. If I'm sold into some foreigner's home, even there, you're there and are guiding me. Our adaptation of this verse, if we were to write it down and pray it back to God, might go like this. Where can we go to get away from your spirit, Lord? If we go into quarantine, you're there. If we go out into the world of germs, into the stores, you're there. Even if we go into the ER or to the ICU alone with no one else in the ICU, God, you're there with me. You see, there's no place on this planet you can ever go that God is not there. And it's not just us. This is something that he promises for, all, for everyone. Acts 17, 27. 
says he is not far from any one of us. Will you circle the last phrase, any one of us? God is not far from any one of us. God doesn't play favorites. All people can enjoy God's presence. But many don't. Most don't. They plod through life as if there's no God who loves them. They plod through life as if they have to be the source of their own strength. Their only source of strength. They plod through life as if only the solutions that come will be solutions they come up with. Or worse than that, Washington comes up with. Listen, our help is never going to come from the government. It's never going to come from our employers. It's never going to come from any person. Our help comes from the Lord. And most people, they live a Godless life. But there are some Josephs among us. People who sense God's presence, who see God's presence, who hear the presence of God. People who pursue God with a passion. People like Moses. When Moses was suddenly tasked with the care of two million people, all these ex-slaves from Egypt, he begins to wonder, how am I going to provide for all these mouths? How are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to protect them if we're attacked? How can we survive? Moses needed supplies. He needed managers. He needed equipment. He, he, he needed a strategic storehouse, right? He needed an army corps of engineers. But when Moses prayed, you know what he prayed? This is what he prayed in Exodus 33:15. When Moses then Moses said, "God, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place." Moses knew what he needed more than food or protection or organization. What he needed most was God's presence. Same thing for King David. Now, King David, he was a little different. He created his own Egypt scenario. The truth is, some of us, we make wrong decisions and it creates our own enslavement. David ended up seducing the wife of one of his top soldiers, a close friend, and he covers up the affair and her pregnancy with sin by murdering and lying. He murdered his friend and lied about it. And he ran from God for about a year. David, the one who said, God said he's a man after my... He runs from God for about... Have you been running from God? Maybe some of you have been running from God for the last year. But you can't hide forever. And neither could David. And when David finally confessed his immorality, he made only one request of God. Look what he said in Psalm 51.11. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, notice what David did not pray. He didn't say, don't take my crown. He didn't say, God, don't take my kingdom from me. Don't take my army from me. David knew what mattered most, more than his crown, more than his army, more than his kingdom. He says, don't take your presence away from me. And he begged God for it. And we should do likewise. David made God's presence his passion. We should do that. So how? How do we make God's presence our passion? I want you to give you six quick, practical ways that we can increase the passion for God's presence in our life. 
Number one, I want you to write this down. I need to become more sponge and less rock. I need to become more sponge and less rock. What in the world are you talking about, Jerry? Here's what I mean. If you take a rock and you place it, if this, if this uh, tank of water represented the Atlantic Ocean, if you take a rock and you place it in the ocean, what happens to the rock? It gets wet. Does it get wet partially or all wet? It's wet. The ocean is on every side, above, under, left side, north side, south side, west side. It's completely on the rock. But here's what we know. No matter how long the rock stays in the ocean, if I were to crack this rock open, it's still dry as a rock. Because it can, it can have the water all around it, but the water doesn't ever penetrate it. God can be all around us, but we have to allow His presence to penetrate our heart like a sponge. And when you put a sponge in the water, not only does the water surround it, top, bottom, each side, but we know because of all of the pores, because of the, because of the pliability of the sponge, we know that this sponge now is full of the water. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of heart am I going to carry through life? Am I going to carry, oops, no problem. Am I going to carry through life a heart that is hard, hardened? You're going to meet a lot of hard-hearted people. They've hardened their heart and resisted God. That's your choice. Especially when we go through a difficult season like we've been in. We're tempted to harden our heart. Sometimes we're even tempted to blame God. Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this virus? Why did you allow my company to go under? Why did you allow my spouse to leave me, my kid to turn on me, my, my family to... Why, why, why? And your tendency or your temptation is to run from God, to resist God, to harden your heart. Listen, hard hearts never heal. Spongy ones do. Open every pore of your heart to God. Open every pore of your soul to His presence. Here's how you do that. Number two, I lay claim to the nearness of God. I lay claim to the nearness of God. Hebrews 13.5 says, Never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. This is a verse that we should memorize where God says, Never will I leave you, Jerry. Never will I forsake you, Jerry. If you actually read that in the Greek original language, it has five, five negatives in it. It's like a double negative cancels each other out, another double negative, and another negative makes it negative again. If you read it in the, in the original language, it says, I will not not leave thee, neither will I not not forsake thee. And we're like, what? What does that mean? It means never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We need to have a grip on this promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has not left you, God has not forsaken you, even in the COVID crisis. 
We need to hold on to that promise and repeat it to yourself over and over and over again until it trumps all the other voices, all the other negatives, all the other what if, what if, oh, the sky is falling. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, with His love. He calms all your fears. What a great verse. With His love, He calms all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. If we're not careful, we can allow the news and the noise to drown out God's presence in our life. Yes, He's all around us just like He's all around the rock. But if we don't become a sponge and if we don't lay claim to the nearness, it can seem like He's not there. This is what happened to Job. Job 23 Job says, I go to the east, but God's not there. I go to the west, but I can't find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I look to the south, but he's concealed. Job felt far from God. Yet in spite of his inability to feel God's presence, sometimes you don't feel God's presence, he had resolve. He says in verse 10, But God knows where I am going, and when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. That's determination. Listen, when we're going through difficult days, and we are, when we're going through difficult days, difficult days of life demand positive decisions of faith. What are the positive decisions of faith that we're making in these difficult days of life? We must choose to put our faith in God. The psalmist said it this way, but when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. That means we're going to be afraid. Not if I'm afraid. When I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in you. It's not a sin to be afraid. You're going to experience things that make you afraid. It's okay to be afraid. In your fear, say, God, I'm afraid of this virus, or I'm afraid of this economic downturn, or I'm afraid of retirement without a 401k, or I'm afraid we're going to lose this or lose that. I'm afraid we're not going to have enough to eat. But I'm going to put my trust in you. Acknowledge the fear, and I'm going to put my trust in you. Don't judge the presence of God on whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood. The presence of God is all around us. God is near us whether we're happy or not. The presence of God is not based on our feelings. Thank you, God, for that. That is not based on our feelings. Third thing I've got to cling to is character. You want to have a passion for God's presence? Cling to his character. Become a sponge, claim his nearness, and cling to his character. How do I do that? Well, you've got to study your Bible. Have I mentioned that we need to study, read our Bible? Yes. So, when we read our Bible, we learn about God. When we learn about God, we hide those, those verses in our heart, those principles in our heart, those characteristics of God in our heart. And then we remind ourselves of that when things are going bad, when things are going tough. Look, when things are going sideways in my life, Nancy and I talk about it like this. We say, well, I don't know what the future holds. Let's go back to what we know. What do we know? And then I quote back to God, to, for my benefit, what I know. And I, I wrote them down. I, I don't even have to read it. I don't have a list I have to read. I can just say these things. As I'm driving in the car and I'm worried about all of these things and, and, and catastrophes happen all around us, here's, I say this. I say, God, this is what I know. 
God is still sovereign. I know that. God is sovereign. And God still knows my name. And this is what I know. Angels still respond to his call. And the hearts of rulers still yield at God's bidding. This is what I know. The death of Jesus still saves souls. No matter what I'm going through, this is what I know. The Spirit of God still dwells all believers and lives within me. This is what I know. Heaven is just one breath away, one heartbeat away. This is what I know. The grave is still empty. And my grave will just be temporary housing. This is what I know. God, you are still faithful. This is what I know. God, none of this caught you off guard. Because you know everything. This is, this is what I know. God, you use everything for your glory, for your ultimate good, and what's best in my life. Your will is always best for me. And is pure and holy and perfect. You see, you've got to study the character of God and you've got to remind yourself, cling to His character. And that will give you more peace. It will give you complete peace, no matter what you're going through. My small group just went through a study called The Real God. And one of the things we, we talked about was God's immutability. That means He never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These are truths that never change no matter what the news tells you, no matter what the leaders of the world decide, no matter what the germs bring us, no matter what happens. I can say, sorrow may come with the night, but your joy comes in the morning. So God, this has been a horrible day. I'm going to go to bed and claim that you're going to bring joy in the morning. That's how you cling to God's character. And you do that, and you pray out. Number four, I pray my pain out. I pray my pain out. Now, what do I mean by that? When I was a kid, I was taught these little prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Anybody ever pray that one that when you're a kid? Good Lord, good meat, good food, let's eat, whatever. God is good. God is great. Let's thank him. Those are great prayers for a three-year-old. But when you're a 53-year-old, sometimes you need to just pound your fist on the table and you need to say, help! Or you need to cry out to him. And maybe you need to stomp around your yard. Maybe you need to go on a walk and put some earbuds in so people think you're, you're listening to music, but what you're really doing is you're having a conversation with God and you're ticked and you're like, God, I don't understand why this is happening. And you let this happen and that happen. And, and, and you can raise your hand. And you can shake your fist. You can do all of those things. It's time for tenacious, honest prayers. Are you angry at God? Some people are like, oh no, you can't be angry at God. Yeah, you can. And let me just say, some of you, you're angry at God. And the beginning to healing is to admit it. And to say, yeah, I'm ticked. I don't like this. This, this rots. Why are you letting this virus affect my family? Why are you letting my company go out of business? Why are you letting... And, I don't, and you don't like God's choices, and you don't like God's plan, and you don't like God's distance right now. Go ahead and let him know. Let him have it. Jeremiah did. He was the ancient pastor in Jerusalem. We studied a little bit about his time zone, time frame, last year when we looked at Daniel. 
And this ancient prophet, he stayed. He didn't get picked to go into exile. He stayed in a time of collapse, political collapse and economic upheaval and invasion and disaster and even exile and death. Jeremiah saw it all. And he has this devotion and he writes out his prayers in this journal. And the journal is in your Bible. It's called Lamentations. Have I mentioned you should read your Bible? If you read Lamentations, you can't believe some of the things he says to God. I mean, you're like, whoa, God's going to strike him dead. God doesn't strike him dead. He doesn't. This is just some of what he wrote in Lamentations 3, verse 2 to 8. He says, God has led me into the darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in. I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. And Jeremiah goes on like this for like five chapters. Over and over, you're reading it and you feel a little uncomfortable reading it. Like, God, I, you know, it's not my prayer. I'm just reading what you have down here. Don't strike me either. God's not going to strike you for reading Jeremiah. He won't even strike you if you pray like Jeremiah. And you can summarize his whole book with one sentence. This life sucks. It's basically what Jeremiah says. But worse is how he says it. Now, why would God let Lamentations First of all, why would they let him pray that? Why would they let him pray it and then write it down? And then why would he include it in our Bible for several thousand years? Well, maybe it's to convince us to follow the example of Jeremiah. Go ahead. Complain to God. File all your grievances. In fact, it's not just Jeremiah where we get this. Psalm 142.2 says, I pour out my complaints before him and I tell him all my troubles. I've told you this before. Complaining to God is not a sin. Now, complaining God to complaining about God to other people might be. But you can go to your good, good father, and you could complain about all your sad, sad life and your difficult circumstances that are, they're bad. And you can even be angry about it, and your good, good father is just going to say, tell me more. Tell me more. Let it out. I love you. He will not turn away at our anger. Even Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 5, verse 7. Listen, it is better to shake your fist at God than to turn your back on Him and walk away. Go ahead and tell God how you feel. For some of you, you need to get it out. Your words might seem hollow and flustered and even out of bounds when you first start. But don't quit. Don't hide them from God. Open out and pray your pain out. Number five, I need to lean on God's people. Listen, this is no time to be a hermit. I know that sounds crazy for me to say when we're being sequestered and locked up and locked down. You've got to find a way. We were not meant to live isolated and alone. So if that means technology and you Zoom with people or you FaceTime with people or you call them up the old-fashioned way, maybe you're, maybe you're real old school you've got a flip phone. Or you're even older school and you've got one of those rotary phones. Give someone a call. Reach out and touch someone, as they used to say, and make sure that you're connecting with people. Now that church is open, I'm glad that you're back. Those of you who are back, I pray that you'll come back every week. 
And if you're watching at home, when you're able to come back or when our programming allows you to come back, you come back and come back every single week. There's nothing like being around God's people to help strengthen you. When life gets hard, we need God's people. Matthew 18:20 says, For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. Interesting story in the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you real quick. It's the story of Moses when he's praying over Joshua leading the Israelites against the Amalekites. The Amalekites are battling Israel, and Moses goes up on a hill to pray. And as Moses lifts his hands up to pray, the Israelites win, and when his hands start to fall down, they start to lose. But Moses doesn't go up. It's a very strange strategy, great story. Uh, you should read your Bible. Um, he takes two guys with him, his brother Aaron, and he takes a man named Hur. Aaron and Hur hold Moses' arms up when they get too tired. He doesn't go alone. He goes with two prayer partners, and they pray. And in the Israelites, God does a miracle, and they, they, they win the day. The point from that story is we have to learn that when we're going through, you're not going to fight any Amalekites this week, but you're going to have your own spiritual battles. And when you go through the battles of life, you need people praying with you and maybe even holding you up as you go into that battle. God's waiting on you and me. If Joseph's story is any precedent, God can use Egypt to teach us that he is with us. God can use COVID to teach us that he is with us. You may have lost everything, just like Joseph. Maybe, maybe your family is isolated. Maybe you've lost your supporters. Maybe you lost your company or your business or your job. Certainly your 401k has been cut in half. But listen, God has not budged. If he seems far away, he's not. You just got to become more sponge and less stone. Genesis 28:15. his promise still stands. I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. Last one. <clears throat> I know I'm rattling through these fast. I've got to guard my heart. Joseph was probably in his 20s when all of a sudden he faces a huge temptation. It was a sexual temptation. His brothers sell him into slavery. They, they assume he's done. He's going to have a hard life and, a, and an early death. They had no concept that he was going to shoot up the career ladder so quickly. And very, very fast, he's running the whole, he has the Midas touch. And he's running Potiphar's whole house, and Potiphar's bragging to all of his friends, man, this Hebrew guy, everything he touches turns to gold. I put him in touch my, in charge of my whole house, and merchants are answering to him, and he's buying and selling and sending and receiving, and, and people are starting to notice him, especially the women. They notice him. It says in Genesis 39, 6 and 7, Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. Apparently Joseph was hot, y'all. <clears throat> square jaw, wavy hair, big biceps, and that bulge every time he shows up with a tray for Mrs. Potiphar, which was often. She enjoyed the sight of him, it says. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. So the first lady of the household makes a play for her Hebrew slave, Joey, you know. How about a little sugar with my coffee? Wink, wink, right? And as she passes in the hallway, she's, she's squeezing his arms. Woo! And as he cuts close, she's rubbing his leg. Woo! And she communicates by the clothes that she wore or by the clothes that she didn't wear. She made it clear, I'm yours for the taking. 
She courted him day and night, verse 10 says. So he has plenty of, plenty of opportunities to consider this proposition. Plenty of reasons to accept it. I mean, why wouldn't he accept it? She's married to his master. She's in charge. Shouldn't he be obligated to fulfill her wishes, even if it's for clandestine sex? And of course, it would stay clandestine. Nobody would ever know. What happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom, right? Besides, this affair would give, would give him some, some power. He'd have an advocate way up at the top of the, the pyramid, so to speak. And the ends justify the means. And the means weren't all that unpleasant. I mean, Potiphar was a wealthy Egyptian official. He probably had his pick from, from almost any of the women. His wife was likely a, a jaw dropper. So Joseph doesn't lose his manly urges when he loses his coat of many colors. In a few moments, an attractive woman's arm as a lover, he could use some relief. Doesn't he deserve it? I mean, his family abandons him. They sell him into slavery. All the stress from managing this whole household. He could have justified the choice. It's funny how we can justify things. You can probably justify your choice. Maybe you've been jilted. Maybe you've been cheated on. Maybe you've been sold out and turned away. Let go. Maybe you had some bad health or some bad credit or some bad luck. And few, few friends or even fewer solutions. The hours are long. And all of a sudden there's a Mrs. Potiphar in your life or a Mr. Potiphar in your life. And they have a sultry offer and they slip you a room key or they slip you a bottle of this or that. Co-worker offers you some drugs. A lot of ways you can justify and rationalize. No one would know. You know, I'm in lockdown. Nobody will know. I won't get caught. Look, Egypt can be a pretty cruddy place. COVID can be a pretty cruddy place. Nobody disagrees with that. Egypt can also be a catalyst for some very bad decisions. Don't make matters worse by doing something that you're going to regret. Joseph goes on high alert. Whenever she dangled the bait, it says in verse 8, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in the entire household. He shut her down. He gives her no time. He gives her no attention. He gives her no chit-chat, no flirting, no reason for hope. But she kept coming. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. When her number comes up on his cell phone, he swipes ignore. When she texts him, he doesn't reply. When she comes in his office, he splits. He avoided her like the poison that she was. And to sleep with her would have been a sin against his master. This is such rare resolve because Egyptian culture is like our culture. Well, they're consenting adults. We have sexual rights. People forget how immorality destroys the people who are outside of the bedroom. Joseph placed loyalty over lust. And he was he honored his master, and more importantly, he honored his master. He says in verse 9, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be like a great sin against God. So the lesson we learn from Joseph in Potiphar's house is very simple. The main lesson for this week is so simple. Just do what pleases God, period. Just do what pleases God. Your co-workers 
try to include a trip to the gentleman's club and part of the agenda for the evening, what do you do? You just do what pleases God. Your date invites you to conclude the evening at their apartment for some drinks. What do you do? You do what pleases God. Friend hands you a joint, some weed to smoke. Your classmates show you how you can cheat and get an easy A. What do you do? You just do what pleases God. Psalm 4, 5 says, Do what is right as a sacrifice to the Lord and trust the Lord. Look, you don't fix a struggling marriage by having an affair. You don't fix a drug problem by starting to drink on top of that. You don't get out of debt by borrowing more money. You don't fix stupid with stupid. You don't get out of a mess by making another one. Do what pleases God. It's that simple. We will never go wrong by doing what's right. In turbulent times like we're going through right now, they tempt us to forget about God. And the shortcuts in life become a lure, become a temptation. And there's always a siren and a temptress, a Mrs. Potiphar, or there's always a temptress or a Mr. Potiphar that will call on us. Don't be foolish. Don't be naive. Do what pleases God, period. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray and ask Him to help us with this. Heavenly Father, thank You for this example that Joseph gives us. Help us to pursue with a passion Your presence. Help, help us to become more sponge and less rock. Help us to let You into our heart, not resist You. Help us to claim Your nearness, God, that You are all around us. And help us to cling to Your character. Help us to read our Bible, learn what You're like, and claim Your character. Cling to it. And God, help us to some of us need to pray out our pain. We need to let out some of our anger, even our anger towards You. Lord, teach us to lean on Your people. And we can have some prayer partners who can help us face the battles that we're facing this week. And finally, Lord, help us to guard our hearts. Help us to keep our heart pure towards You. And to just focus on this main lesson of doing what pleases you. When we're faced with temptations this week, help us to ask, what's going to please God? What's going to please my Master? And help us to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for guiding us, and for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.